of a clear blue sky and the tears that I cried for that woman gonna flood you big river and I'm gonna sit right here until I die I met her accidentally in St. Paul, Minnesota and it tore me up every time I heard her drawl, southern drawl then I heard my dream went back downstream to Borton and Davenport and I followed you big river when it called Hello, and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I will uh, give you some of my thoughts on the middle chapters, the middle third of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by uh, Mark Twain. And this uh, episode is is a clear sequel uh, to the last episode where I looked at the first third of Huckleberry Finn. So I'm, I'm going to kind of build on those themes a little bit. And, and see where it uh, where it takes us uh, for the next uh, 20 or 30 minutes or so. Um, and then in the next last episode, I'll talk about the, the climax and the, the ending of the novel and, and how we might be able to interpret that, um, that bit of text. So um, where we sort of left off was uh, with the scene where they get lost in the fog and then, um, and then Huck feels... Uh, his great regret over tricking Jim, his companion, by by trying to convince him he was just dreaming the whole fog thing, but um, but uh, Jim sees through that lie and feels very hurt that that Huck would would play games with him and tease him and things like that, not seeing him as a full human being, and so that's much of what happens in the next few chapters is is Huckleberry Finn uh, changes his relationship with uh, with Jim. Now that doesn't reach its ending till till chapter thirty one, which is the moral climax of the novel, where he um, firmly commits himself to to freeing Jim. But uh, by this point, uh, that that outcome is being set up, and essentially what we have in um, well, the fog is crucial because it's during the fog that they pass Cairo, um, and because they're on a raft, they have to follow the current of the river. And by passing Cairo, which is that, that city right on the where the Mississippi feeds into the Ohio River, which would have been the way you wanted to go if Jim was going to work his way to freedom in the north. That was the original plan, but they passed it. So now they're doomed to go deeper and deeper into the south. So there's um, on the one hand, you know, even had they followed the Ohio, Huck would have been committing to helping him escape. But he was just sort of hanging out with with Jim still at that point um, and so what happened to Jim would be somewhat Jim would be leading the way I guess because this was sort of Jim's plan um, by passing into the deep deeper south by going staying on the raft as they went farther and farther to south into into the south into places where escape would be less possible less easy Huck is forced to to commit in a much more direct way to being the agent of, of Jim's escape. And so that's where the moral crisis comes from. And, and we have this conflict between like what freedom is, what, and Huck's guilt over what he sees at the time is stealing um, the property of, of Miss Watson. This, the sister of the widow Douglas and widow Douglas was raising him. So, 
<clears throat> Remember, by this point, Huck's been slightly educated. He's been slightly civilized. So the Huck we meet in Tom Sawyer maybe wouldn't have had these thoughts. But these thoughts come as a product of his education. So that's another sign of this adult world intruding. And that's going to be mostly what I'm going to talk about today, is how the adult world intrudes itself on Huck and, uh, and forces him to see the aimlessness, the corruption, the dirtiness, the immorality of the adult world. Um, but here's some of what he says at this stage. Now remember, there's going to be a moral progression here where he commits more and more to seeing Jim as a human being and committing to freeing him. Um, and if we take Huck as sort of a metaphor for American freedom, um, that step to actually free the slaves, which happened, of course, in America, required an unlearning of the past, unlearning of what was learned, right? The original impetus of the United States may have been the, the juvenile era of America, the American Revolutionary Period, may have been to free the slaves, but of course that didn't happen. The adult world, the economy intruded itself into that. And, and that overtook those adult interests of profit, of, of capital, intruded themselves over the desires, uh, the moral argument. And that's a metaphor sort of the, for the education, where that becomes metaphorized in the education of Huck Finn. So he has to unlearn that. And so here's a bit what he wrote. He feels really anxious about this, this passing of Cairo. He says, well, I can tell you, it made me all over trembly and feverish too to hear him because I began to get it through my head that he was most free. And who was to blame for it? Why me? I couldn't get that out of my conscience. No how nor no way. It got to troubling me. So I couldn't rest. I couldn't stay still in one place. It hadn't ever come home to me before what this was that I was doing. But now it did. And it stayed with me and scorched me more and more. I tried to make out to myself that I weren't to blame because I didn't run Jim off from his rightful owners. But I didn't want no use. Conscious up and says every time. But you know if he was running away for freedom and you could have paddled to shore and told someone. That was so. I couldn't get around that no way. That was where it pinched. Conscious says to me, what that poor Miss Watson done to you that you could go see her Negro off right under your eyes and never say a single word? What did that poor old woman do to you that you could treat her so mean? Why, she tried to learn you your, your book and she tried to learn you manners and she tried to be good to you every way she knowed how. That's what she's done, end quote. Now, just to be clear, I, I changed a certain word for Negro and I will do that throughout um, but you know what the original text says we don't have to get into that um, conversation too much but his conscience here's the point his conscience at this point is telling him to bring Jim back to slavery and by the end of the novel his conscience is telling him to free him that's the um, that's the moral transformation of, of Huck um, now he takes another act here, but even though he's got this anguish inside about this, he takes an act, a very conscious act to free Jim. And that is there was a chance to, to give Jim up because some people, uh, come and, and, and see him on the raft and want to, uh, you know, ask questions about him and check up on him and things like that. I mean, he has a kid on the Mississippi on a raft by himself and, uh, Huck says, well, you can't because people are sick and he basically make, convinces them that, that. Jim has smallpox, so they never go in and see that Jim is actually a runaway slave. Um, so it's 
it's called a white lie in the chapter heading, but actually it's a very, it's another positive action that Huck is taking to help ensure Jim's freedom. Um, but it's after this that they realize that they passed Cairo in the, in the fog. So it's all happening around this time. So, so then we get into like the, the middle plot of the novel. And I think I'm going to spare you a play-by-play -play of, of all the different adventures uh, Huck Finn goes on. You've probably read this book anyways. Um, but uh, we, they he encounters a series of groups, generally groups, not, not individuals. He's almost always encountering groups, towns or clans or, 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 you know, or groups of some sort. Uh, so there is a kind of a criticism of society here, I think, being made. Um, so the first group they meet is this gang of robbers and murderers stealing from a steamboat that ran aground. And I think that actually happened a little bit early in the novel, but that's kind of the first uh, clear wind into the adult world that, that they have on their adventures. Then we get the feuding and violent Shepherdsons in the Grangerfords, who are like just two families in the South playing uh, the game of, of Sir Walter Scott, I suppose, if you think back to uh, Mark Twain's criticism of Sir Walter Scott in Life on the Mississippi, he's saying like it basically puts the, put the South into this feudal mindset, uh, this of chivalry and honor and all this other nonsense, which is totally incompatible with the civilization they were actually in and, and maintaining. But a product of this is this old kind of family feud, which is very anachronistic. It feels very anachronistic which I think is partially the point. It's not supposed to be there. It, it doesn't exist. Mo doesn't exist in a modern society. This kind of uh, almost pre-modern family blood feuds where you know no one can even remember how it really started. And it ends up, there's actually, a, you know, people die as a result of this and Huck witnesses this. So this, uh, um, and he knows right away, this is, there's something off about this. And that's something true throughout this story is that Huck always seems to know that something's off about these adults, that it's not quite right, but he he plays along, he plays the game, he um, he kind of lets them do it. it it's, it's sort of like a child at play will see others' children doing weird things, and will just allow that to happen. They won't come in and say, you shouldn't do it that way. There's, there is this kind of innocence <clears throat> to that, but there's also another way to look at that perhaps is that American freedom kind of insists that you let people do what they want and, and you don't butt in. But I also think it's more of a, it's a, it's this natural tendency of Huck to, to go with the flow like the river, right? To just go with it and, and see where it leads him and not intervene too much. And, and he'll eventually intervene after a long while in, in the context of the Duke and the King shenanigans. Finally, he finally steps up and do, does something about it, but he's still kind of following the river, right? The river is just kind of guiding him through, and that's how he sort of acts around uh, these these characters. So by this point in the story, Huck's been split split up by uh, with, with Jim after a steamboat almost hit the hit the raft. So Jim's kind of out of the picture for these these events, but he basically uh, meets up with his family, the Grangerfords, one side of the feud and he's he hears the story about these neighboring clans um but you know people have been killed right um the granger fort had lost like a teenage kid um but he meets these people and he meets uh 
like uh, uh, a couple girls, Charlotte, uh, Sophia, and his friend. The one who becomes his friend is, is named Buck, and they kind of hang out together. So Buck's sort of his companion throughout this this chapter. Um, and eventually, because of the feud, Buck is killed, as well as another Grangerford, and this uh, this leads to abandon them and just go back onto the raft and back into the river to see where it takes them. And it's after that he reunites with, with Jim, who I think was hanging out with some slaves um, during this, these events. Um, and anyways, they get back on the raft and this is when they run into the Duke and the King, um, who are just two con artists that come to the, the raft separately. They are uh, both look really rough um, they were both con artists that were basically trying to sell goods. Well, one is like a s selling fake medicine, say fake toothpaste. And the other is running, a like doing preaching, running a revivalist meeting. And they both kind of got called out for their scams and were run out of town and they get to the river and they basically force their way onto the raft. And they can do this because Huck's a child, Jim's a runaway slave. And although they're, really horrible people and impoverished. Um, they have, the change the power dynamic. It puts Jim and Huck in the most dangerous place they've been throughout because at any point, the Duke and the King can basically just turn them in. So Huck's forced to play along. All right, sorry, had to stop for a while. Had the garbage truck come through. Always noisy and annoying. Anyways, we're with the Duke and the King. <clears throat> so these two people size up... Uh, uh, Hawk and Jim and say we're just going to make a lie like a e very very obvious lie and then like Huck sees through it immediately Jim sees through it not much later um, one says he's the Duke of, of, of Bridgewater and the other says he's the actual legitimate uh, the heir like Louis the 17th the heir to the the French crown um, so um, and they immediately take over the raft they take over the sleeping places of huck and jim and they have all the power even though they're they're nobody so this is um this is america where no matter how horrible someone is as long as they're white they're going to have authority over children and black people um that's that's clearly what's going on here um and they begin to set up their scheme they they're they both con artists they come from different backgrounds but they quickly come together and decide to to run their scams together and the original idea the duke seems to have more ideas the king uh, strikes me as a little bit dumber than the duke uh, but the plan is to uh to do shakespeare performances and basically you sell tickets it doesn't matter how bad the performance is because you're going to leave after a day or two anyways that's that's the scam it's the it's the man eating chicken scam essentially if you saw that I don't know what's the origin of that. I saw it in that TV show Carnival, but the idea is you advertise the man eating chicken. People come in and it's literally a person eating chicken. And it doesn't matter because you're out of town the next day. So, yeah, and people will just laugh and they don't want to admit that they got scammed. So they might be able to extend it a couple of days because people don't want to admit that they're scammed. Um, so um, they're ridiculous. But they're no less so than the people that they're able to con. The people that they take advantage of are even more ridiculous than the Duke and the King. So the, the, the people around us in the story, they're all pretty horrible. You don't have much sympathy for the, for the people that are conning too much. Um, 
we actually read in some disbelief that they're able to sustain their schemes as for as long as they do without getting lynched, run out of town or whatever. And all that is eventually what happens to them. They eventually get tarred and feathered. They, you know, that's a story we'll talk about maybe next time. It doesn't really matter that much, but it, we do get a, a coda to the story of the Duke and the King. Um, now, their first trick, of course, involves convincing Jick and Hum that Jick, Jim and Huck, that they are the heirs to the Duke of Bridgewater and Louis the Seventh. Maybe he says he's Louis the Eighteenth. Um, I forget, but um, of course, Huck doesn't accept it. But it's interesting that we have these two con artists who are able to take advantage of the democratic capitalism of, the, of this period of American history. And of course, this is a democratic capitalism that's very limited. It's only for white males. It, it doesn't extend to others, children, blacks, women. Um, but they have, they have a facade of inherited privileges based on the status that they claim for themselves. But they also have an inherited privilege based on their whiteness. Um, and that's why I think that article, Is Hook Black, is kind of compelling because although he's not in the story, he's treated as someone who doesn't have that. He's taken, people take advantage of him or try to take advantage of him. So they do various scams. One is they, they do the Shakespeare performance, um, pretending to be like English traveling uh, performers. They do a revival. That's like an old scam of the king, I think, uh, is to do these revivalists. And, and one is they, they pretend to be pirates or something and, uh, and, and begging for money. Now, while they're doing this, they run into another town where someone is being uh, lynched for shooting a, a drunk person. And, and they're going to lynch him. And the guy just stands down this mob by saying, like, you don't have the balls to lynch me. Which is kind of an interesting side story. I haven't thought much about it when I first read it. I thought a little bit more about it this time. Um, but there's something kind of ridiculous about this. This guy's a straight-up murderer. He shoots a drunk person just because he can. Um, but he calls he calls out the crowd as trying to lynch him as as cowards. And it actually works. I don't know. It's. I think it's. There's something very interesting going on here. Um, but anyways, now eventually they decide to put on a scam called the Royal Nunsuch. It's. Uh, I don't know how famous it is, but it's. It's rather kind of interesting. And the Royal Nunsuch is. Is the king comes. Well, it's advertised as like a a, a play called the Royal Nunsuch. It's a, some kind of dramatic play. I don't know what it's supposed to be maybe an adventure story or something but uh the play itself is just the king coming out wearing body paint he's completely naked he just has paint on and he's got like this maybe some like like a hat or like you know weird kind of um accessories but uh and then the show just ends it's just like five minutes or something stupid show and this is the man-eating chicken thing where the crowd, you know, basically goes to can tell the other people in the town to go see the show. Because then if all the men, because actually that's how they get people to come in. They say women and children not allowed. So it's only the men that come. And the men are embarrassed by this. So they said, but if we convince everyone to go, then everyone will be equally ridiculous. Um, so they, they do it a second night. And on the third night, they're, um, 
the town basically decides to lynch them and get rid of them. But they they predict that's what's going to happen and they get away. So um, they just go town to town, um, playing these different different scams, and eventually they get to the Wilkes um, family, and so that's I guess where we'll sort of end up here. I don't. Um, I mean, plot-wise, uh, the section I want to read for today just sort of ends with the Wilkes farm issue. And what happens here is they pretend to be um, like the cousins who were, who were visiting, like some relatives from, from somewhere else were going to come and visit. And, of course, they don't have pictures. They don't really know what people look like. So they claim to be these relatives and the real heirs or whatever to this property. And they begin to sell it off. They begin to auction it off and sell off the slaves. And this is like their big um, haul. Now, Huck Finn, during all this, befriends uh, this young girl in the... Uh, Mary Jane is her name, uh, in, the, in the community. And eventually he's going to take his first act to really confront the Duke and the King by stealing the money that they've stolen from the Wilkes family, hiding it um, in a... In a grave or in a, in, a, in a coffin and then basically saving the family fortune the family money that way so that's his first real clear act against the against the duke and the king so these details they don't really that um they, they don't matter for much what i'm trying to say um but what the duke and the king do is they choose whatever will make them money uh, for instance, to quote one of them, "Jure printer by trade, do a little when Pat Menson's theater actor tragedy, you know. Take a turn at mesmerism and phrenology when there's a chance. Sing, teach singing, geography school for a change, sling a lecture sometimes. Oh, I do lots of things. This is, uh, I think, the Duke when he's being asked by the Dauphin, the king, what he does. Um, so they put on a revival, get donations for a missionary uh trip to Asia. They're just taking advantage of everyone they can. It's it's pure capitalism. It's capitalism that's most brutal um, and vulgar. We're in that kind of democratic era where there's no like checks. There's no balance. There's no checks on on one's entrepreneurial activities. Right? It's a libertarian dream, I suppose. Where anyone who can just, ha who has a, the, the can say the right words, who's charismatic, is able to get what they want out of someone else. At one point, they even sell Jim, of course, and that's that's part of uh, the scam towards later of the book, later towards the end of the book. Now, Huck does see them as kind of interesting playmates, even though they're a threat, but they are basically characteristic of the worst aspects of, of American society at the time. And this brings us back to the theme we've been playing with throughout is just this contrast between the adult and the child's world. Um, now, anyways, um, where do I want to go with this? I mean, my overall feeling is that Huck Finn does emerge as a revolutionary figure in American literature. So I talked last time about how there's a concern I have a slight concern that that Mark Twain might be infantilizing Jim, right? Because he's good and all the adults are bad. And where, you know, if you have two categories, the good and the bad and Huck and Jim are the only good ones and all the others are like, and maybe a few other young people 
fit on the good side, right? Like Mary Jane. The Wilkes girl. The, the adults are all universally bad. So that seems to infantilize Jim a little bit. And, and in fact, in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Mark Twain writes in the introduction about, quote, the odd superstitions touched upon were prevalent among children and slaves, placing the two groups in a common kind of popular religious space. And much of the humor in Huckleberry Finn comes from the conversations, the conversations between these two people regarding ghosts, superstitions, understands of the universe and all that. And they, they are kind of presented as two people at the same level talking to each other, right? So the slaves are at the level of children, which is, of course is what the paternalistic South implied. They didn't even imply. They said it directly, right, in their paternalistic defense of slavery, saying black people are in need of being of uplift, of, of, of grow up or trying to help them out, where their parents, you know, of course, the reality of slavery didn't conform to this, but that was the rhetoric. That was the defense of slavery. Um, now, and also, as I talked about last time and a bit today, too, the other side of this coin is that being moral seems to require never growing up. Or, I mean, how do you grow up and reach moral maturity, but not grow up so much that you end up without knowing it in that disgusting adult world that makes you forget those values? Um, so, Huck spends most of this novel in some kind of rebellion against civilization. He's, he's a rebel from the beginning, but is he a revolutionary? I don't know. So his adventure begins with flight from the Widow Douglas and Pap. Um, and his story ends, spoiler alert, with the decision to move to Indian country. Um, now, that doesn't happen in the sequels. We get two sequels with Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. Uh, Tom Sawyer detective and on the one where they, they take the trip to Europe or whatever. But I mean, that could have been the end. That would have been a nice end where he really does go off to Indian country. Of course, that's just delaying the inevitable. Civilization comes there too. And does this in its own way infantilize Indians a little bit? I don't know. But he transcends elite culture by choosing a free gem. So I do think there's a space for his moral maturity in that decision to, to free gem. And I think that's what we have to talk about next time. So I'm going to leave it at that, and I'm going to um, uh, save the, my final thoughts about the adventures of Huckleberry Finn for the for the next episode. So anyways, uh, I guess that's all I have to say for now. Uh, this middle part of the novel really is just a series of vignettes of little adventures that Huck and Jim have with the Duke and the King. And it's humorous and kind of hard to read at times, too, when you see just how horrible people are to one another. But that's all a part of um, Mark Twain's point in all this. So anyways, let me know what you think about all of this, and I will uh, see you next time. Thanks for listening. She's been here, but she's gone, boy, she's gone I found her trail in Memphis, but she just walked up the bluff She raised a few eyebrows and then she went on down the wall Now won't you bat it down by Baton Rouge, River Queen